Part three of Travels in Lancashire. Old Time Travel in Lancashire by William Harrison. Chapter three of Memorials of Old Lancashire. Edited by H. A. Fishwick. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travel by railway, though only of comparatively recent introduction, has by this time become so universal and has so thoroughly ingrained itself into the habits of Englishmen that it is only by an effort of the imagination that most people can contemplate an inland journey of any length by road. It is true that within the last few years bicycles and motor-cars have done something to revive the memory of the later coaching times when the common roads were alive with traffic of all kinds. But those times were themselves brief, and we need not go much further back to reach a period when stage-coaches were as great an innovation as the railways were to become later. The local travel of this anterior period, stretching back to early medieval times, has an interest of its own. It may not, therefore, be without profit if we endeavour to trace out the original main lines of communication in Lancashire, describe the state of the roads of the county from time to time, and to set forth the modes, conditions and incidents of travel, so far as a knowledge of these things has come down to us. In Lancashire, as in many other districts, the great lines of travel were dictated from the beginning by the physical configuration of the land. There are in the county three great rivers, each flowing from the eastern hills to the western sea. At the lowest point on each, at which a bridge could be conveniently thrown across, we find a town erected, on the Loon, Lancaster, on the Ribble, Preston, on the Mersey, Warrington. Through these towns it was inevitable that a great road to the south should run, making a direct line instead of one following the irregularities of the coast, and such we find to have been in fact the case. Along this direct line ran the Roman road. Along it runs today the West Coast Railway to Scotland, and along it ran the chief Lancashire road of the Middle Ages. The earliest map we have showing anything of Lancashire that of about A.D. 1300, preserved in the Bodleian Library, shows distinctly this road, and this road alone, stretching along on its way from London to Carlisle. Among the earliest bridges, too, of which we have any record in the county, are those of Lancaster, Preston and Warrington, of all of which we hear in the 13th century. Not many other bridges do we hear of at this early period, Indeed, the list is about exhausted when we have named also those at Manchester and Stockport, on the great road to Derbyshire, and Cowan Bridge, in the remote northeastern corner of the county. This last named, by the way, affords an early instance of a bridge supported by tolls. This is explainable by its peculiar position on the great highway between Yorkshire and Westmoreland. As it existed only for the traffic of these two counties, it was only fair that the burden of keeping it up should not be thrown upon the county in which it happened to be situated. The corporation of Lancaster for some hundreds of years received the tolls, and, it is presumed, kept the bridge in repair. Though the roads we have just named were the only great roads, there were no doubt many other highways suitable for foot and horse. Parishes in the county were exceptionally large, and there would of necessity be a way of some sort from each outlying part of a parish to the parish church. There was, for instance, a way by which dwellers in Rossendale could reach their parish church at Clitheroe, twelve miles distant, but for the reason that it was very foul, painful, and hillous, they succeeded ultimately in obtaining a parish church of their own. The establishment of the religious houses provided other centres to which roads would of necessity converge. Indeed, the roads to and from the monasteries must have been tolerably lively. There would have been a stream of arriving and departing visitors. Frequent visits would have to be paid to the mother-house where such existed, or the daughter-cells and granges, or the estates scattered up and down the country, which had been acquired by gift or purchase, and whence would be regularly brought some part of the produce. Some of the monasteries, certainly Furness, and probably Wally, carried on a considerable trade by supplying wool to the Flemish and Florentine merchants, 
whom it reached from the east coast ports of Boston or Lynn. To such distant and out-of-the-way houses, as Furness and Cartmel, approached over extensive sands, the maintenance of communications was of capital importance. From an early period, the prior of Cartmel had thrown upon him the duty of maintaining a guide to assist travellers across the fords. The series of sands in and beyond Morecambe Bay made formidable obstacles in the way of travel to Furness or into Cumberland. The seven miles from Hest Bank to Kent's Bank, known as the Lancaster Sands, involved the crossing of the channels of the rivers Keir and Kent, and there, according to the old distich, Kent and Keir have parted many a man and his mare. Then, after a few miles of terra firma past Cartmel, came the Leven Sands, not so long, but even more dangerous, as the ford was always shifting. The priory of Conishead on the further side had the duty of supplying a guide over these sands, and on Chapel Island, midway in the channel, they performed services for the attendance of those crossing. These sands safely crossed, the Abbey of Furness was easily reached, but travellers into Cumberland had still another crossing, that of the Duddon Sands. Very early in history do we find recorded instances of loss of life during the crossing of these sands. In 1269, Sir Michael de Furness was drowned on Leven Sands while crossing to Aldingham after dining at the Priory of Cartmel. Again in the reign of Edward II, sixteen lives were lost at one time, and six or more at another. Besides these crossings, there were well-defined passages across the estuary of the Ribble below Preston and across the Mersey at Hale, by which travellers from the northern parts of Lancashire made their way to Chester. These were the more notable obstacles to travel. More ordinary were the numerous places where the rivers in their higher stages had to be crossed, for never can one go far without being confronted by a flowing stream, and bridges were then few. How frequent these crossing places were, is indicated by the numerous place names of which ford is a component part. Where the rivers were too deep for fording, we find ferries were established at an early period. In the 12th century, ferries across the Mersey were in existence at Warrington and between Widnes and Runcorn. The right of ferry from Liverpool to Birkenhead was the property of the Lord of Liverpool, and one in the opposite direction was granted by the king to the prior and convent of Birkenhead in 1331. Again we see the interest of the religious houses in keeping up their communications. On the Ribble, ferries existed from very early times at Salmsbury, Elston, Balderstone and Osbaldeston. Thus did travellers in medieval days overcome the obstacles which rivers placed in their way. The roads themselves probably presented little difficulty. Carriages, of course, were few, and travel was chiefly on foot or horseback. The roads in those times seemed to have been tolerably good. Along them travelled the prince and the peasant, the knight with his retainers, the judges on their circuit, the bishops on their visitations, the abbot and the prior on their way from one religious house to another, the merchant with cavalcades carrying his goods the pilgrim intent on visiting the shrines at Durham, York, Pontefract or Chester, or the Holy Well in North Wales. All these classes were interested in the maintenance of good roads, and they probably secured such as were, at any rate, good enough for their purpose. We hear a few complaints in those times, and travel seems to have been tolerably fast, but towards the end of the 15th century there came a change. The break-up of the feudal system the decline of tillage and the scarcity of agricultural labour caused the roads to get into disrepair, here as elsewhere. And then came the Reformation to accentuate the change. With the monasteries dissolved and their scattered estates sold, abbots and priors no longer journeyed, pilgrimages came to an end, estates became concentrated and not scattered, fewer people being interested in the good condition of the roads Neglect and decay naturally followed. In the latter part of the 16th century, the roads became worse and the cost of carriage increased, and in the following century, matters in this respect became worse and worse. In the meantime, however, the number of bridges seems to have been increasing. 
in the maps of saxton and speed at the end of the sixteenth century we find twenty-nine shown and the probability is that there were some few others each hundred in the county maintained its own bridges except three which were the affair of the whole county viz those at lancaster walton ribblebridge and crossford on the mersey near manchester the number of bridges in salford hundred mentioned in the manchester constable's accounts from sixteen fourteen onwards is considerable we frequently read of special lays or rates being levied for the repair of these bridges and of the county bridges in one case that of darcy lever bridge the lay was for re-edifying and was objected to and seems to have aroused something like passive resistance for the constables made a charge for writing the names of all the inhabitants that refused to pay and afterwards for a precept to distrain for the amounts due from them bridge building became necessary owing to the fords being cut up by the increasing traffic the necessity is forcibly expressed in a quarter sessions order in sixteen thirty seven in regard to fennisford across the calder near Wally. its preamble sets forth that the river is very often especially at the winter season so great that there is no passage for man or horse and many attempting at such times to pass have been drowned and almost daily some persons are there put in danger of their lives and have their loads and carriages drowned and lost and that the said ford is of late years so worn and grown so rocky that in short time it is thought will become altogether impassable being almost impossible to be amended by the charge and labour of man voluntary contributions had been made in aid of a bridge and the court made an order levying a tax of two fifteenths on the hundred of blackburn towards building a stone bridge additional bridges were no doubt a necessity on account of the rapidly increasing trade of the county the act of parliament of thirty three henry the eighth as to sanctuary sets forth that many strangers from ireland and elsewhere resorted to manchester with linen yarn wools and other necessary wares for making of cloths and others resorted to the town with a great number of cottons to be sold to the inhabitants for dressing and freezing again in sixteen forty one we are told that the men of manchester bought linen yarn from the irish in great quantity and weaving it returned the same again into ireland to sell they also bought cotton wool in london that came first from cyprus and smyrna and at home worked it and perfected it into fustians dimities and other such stuffs and then returned it to london all this of course meant a considerable traffic for the roads again in the house and farm accounts of the shuttleworths of smithells and gawthorpe which have been published by the chetham society we are able to see how considerable an extent the keeping up of a single country house contributed to road traffic we find numerous entries showing how articles are fetched from various lancashire towns as well as from halifax york and chester and occasionally from london and from the great annual fair at stourbridge near cambridge now and then a physician is fetched on horseback from chester a servant is sent to wrexham for hops halting for the night at warrington or frodsham and once a messenger goes to formby on the coast with three horses to bring two barrels of herrings during the civil wars of the seventeenth century the bridges no doubt suffered through military operations thus the milne bridge at manchester and two other bridges near to it were taken down early in the war by command of the officers for the parliament for the safety of the garrison which bridge lying for a long time after so broken down as aforesaid the inhabitants of the parts adjacent to manchester that formerly had passage over the said bridge to the church and market at manchester were debarred of the same to their great loss and prejudice so much we learn from an order of the committee for sequestrations made in sixteen forty nine under which the high sheriff was repaid twenty two pound dispersed by him in repairing the bridges and later on in sixteen seventy an act of parliament empowered the justices of lancashire and cheshire during the next ten years to build new bridges and repair and rebuild such as were demolished in the late war in the marchings and countermarchings during the war we naturally find the bridges and river passages watched and guarded 
and when possible made use of thus we find the parliamentary commander erecting a strong sconce or fort upon the marsh near preston to command the fords over the ribble this did not however prevent the royalist forces from marching over ribble water at hesketh banks into the fylde and afterwards over wyawatter soon after they returned crossing the ribble at wharton and finding they durst not abide in the county marched over liverpool water at hale ford into cheshire the mersey is not at the present time fordable at all at hale where the river is of considerable width but we find the ford used again and again during the war prince rupert fresh from his victory at bolton marched his forces across and according to a contemporary report took his prisoners along with him when it was too deep almost for horses to go they must wade over either in their clothes or putting them off carry them upon their necks it was supposed they intended to drown them and this was remarkable there was an old man a prisoner conceiting their intention to be so hard-hearted and cruel towards them encouraged his fellows exhorting them to be of good cheer and fear not though they think to drown us yet they must not god is stronger than the devil now the prisoners had special care one of another keeping close together to support one another if they were weak and in danger in the water so that through god's power they all got through with less danger than the horsemen after the defeat at marston moor rupert again made for hale ford on his way to chester on this occasion he entered the county at hornby and as he is not mentioned to have passed through lancaster or preston it is likely that he came down the ribble valley avoiding the towns another royalist force had a narrow escape at the crossing of the ribble estuary trying to avoid the enemy they arrived at freckleton at a time when the tide did not allow of their crossing the parliamentary commander sir john meldrum was however delayed and arrived in time to see them marching over ribble water when it was very deep some of them being westmoreland and cumberland men afterwards tried to steal back to prevent which the filed countrymen guarded the passage night and day when the tide was forth and some it is recorded got good prizes by it when the scots under the duke of hamilton invaded england in sixteen forty eight they came south by kirkby longsdale hornby and the loon valley which is to be noted as the route shown in the bodleian map of circa thirteen hundred and not by shap fells and kendall as shown in later road books they made for preston cromwell meanwhile advancing in hot haste from yorkshire by skipton and gisborne and over the old hodder bridge the picturesque ruins of which remain to this day here a council of war was held and next day darwin's stream with blood of scots imbrued testified to the soundness of its decisions and the effectiveness with which they were carried out the pursuit to wigan was wrote cromwell over twelve miles of such ground as i never rode in all my life the day being very wet it was continued along the old road by winwick to warrington bridge where the scots surrendered terms being given them considering says cromwell the strength of the pass and that i could not go over the river within ten miles of warrington with the army the same road from the north was followed by the pretender's army in seventeen fifteen as far as preston and again in seventeen forty five when the young pretender got beyond that town but made for manchester instead of warrington to retard his advance the bridges at warrington crossford and barton were partially destroyed and on arrival at manchester we find his officers repairing crossford bridge and looking up guides for the fords at barlow and cheadle the great highway between south lancashire and yorkshire went over blackstone edge a lofty moorland which seems to have had many terrors especially for south country folk a traveller in sixteen thirty nine who had set out from halifax says i rode over such ways as are past comparison or amending for when i went down the lofty mountain called blackstone edge i thought myself with my boy and horses had been in the land of breakneck it was so steep and tedious yet i recovered twelve miles to rochdale and then i found smooth way to manchester the natives of course thought little of it 
For half a century earlier, we find the Smithall's servants making frequent journeys to Halifax without remark. Ralph Thorsby, the Leeds antiquary, on a June day in 1682, seems to have enjoyed it, for he says, Upon the height of the Blackstone Edge we left Yorkshire, and had a pleasant prospect of Lancashire. He was then twenty-four years of age. Sixteen years afterwards, in early February, he expressed a different view. He says, I took a journey into Lancashire, but found no prospect of business answering to the trouble and hazard in passing Blackstone Edge, where we had a sore storm upon the height of it, when it was fair sunshine on both sides. But we found the snow so drifted that in some of the lanes it was as high as man and horse, in other places so thin-spread that it seemed barely to cover the ice, so that upon the slanting side of the hill my horse, in a moment's time, lost all his feet and fell upon my left leg. Celia Fiennes, the daughter of the parliamentary colonel Nathaniel Fiennes, who has left an interesting diary, published some years ago, in describing her journey from Elland in Yorkshire, about 1697, says, Then I came to Blackstone Edge, noted all over England for dismal high precipices, and steep in the ascent and descent on either end. It's a very moorish ground all about, and even just at the top, though so high that you travel on a causey, which is very troublesome, as it's a moist ground, so as is usual on those high hills. Again the writer, whether it be Defoe or not, of the tour through the whole island of Great Britain, first published in 1724, gives a fearsome account of his journey in the month of August, when he encountered both snow and thunder. He speaks of the consternation of himself and his companions, of the frightful precipice on one hand, and uneven ground on the other, and of the unanimous decision to return to Rochdale, when one of the servants pointed out what he called a plain way, but which they pronounced a very frightful one, narrow and deep, with a hollow precipice on the right. Mountaineers of our day will smile at the timidity of these southerners, but will remember that the modern delight in mountain walks is a recent growth, which two centuries ago would have been incomprehensible. Then too, as now, appreciation or the lack of it depended very much on the prevailing climatic conditions we have already seen how differently thorsby regarded blackstone edge on two different occasions and at a later period we find john wesley writing at one time of his clambering over the horrid mountains between rochdale and todmorden and at another of a delightful ride through the mountains between colne and todmorden Allusion was made just now to travelling on a causey. The causey, or causeway, was a narrow way two to four feet in width, paved with round pebbles, intended for horsemen and pedestrians only. It was guarded by posts at a proper distance to keep carts off it, the open part of the road being generally impassable in the winter from mire and deep ruts. This system seems to have been peculiar to Lancashire, for Defoe, when approaching Wigan, says, We are now in a country where the roads are paved with small pebbles, so that we both walk and ride upon this pavement, which is generally about a yard and a half broad. But the middle road, where carriages are obliged to go, is very bad. It can easily be understood that the meeting of traffic on such a road would put a strain on the good nature of whichever party had to give way to the other. Now and then attempts at reform were made. In 1688, at the quarter sessions held at Ormskirk, it was ordered that all the king's highways in each parish of the hundred of West Derby should forthwith be put in perfect and good repair, that they may be so wide, so smoothed from little hills, little rocks, hollows and slods, that all coaches, carts and carriages may safely in all places going by the coursey meet and pass each other, and that all courses be made of the full breadth of one yard and a quarter of round stones, and not of flags. All overseers of the highways were required to see this order duly and fully executed. Whether or not they actually did so is extremely problematical. Nine or ten years later, some of these highways were travelled by Celia Fiennes, already mentioned. She had been crossing the sands of Dee from Harden, and then the peninsula of Wirral, till she found herself on the banks of the Mersey. She says, This I ferried over, 
and was an hour and a half in the passage it's of great breadth and up low water is so deep and salt as the sea almost though it does not cast so green a hue on the water as the sea but else the waves toss and the rocks grate all around it and is as dangerous as the sea it's a sort of hoy that i ferried over and my horses the boats would have held one hundred people she does not allude to a circumstance mentioned by a writer some thir some thirty or forty years later viz that when people land on the liverpool side they are carried through the water a little way on the shoulders of men who wade knee-deep in the mud to take them out of the boats leaving liverpool she takes to the west derby highways thence to prescott seven very long miles but pretty good way mostly lanes thence to wigan seven miles more mostly in lanes and some hollow ways and some pretty deep stony way so forced as upon the high causey but some of the way was good which i went pretty fast and yet by reason of the tediousness for miles for length i was five hours going that fourteen miles i could have gone thirty miles about london in the time then she went next day to preston of which she wrote preston is reckoned but twelve miles from wigan but they exceed in length by far those that i thought long the day before from liverpool it is true to avoid the many meres and marshy places it was a great compass i took and passed down and up very steep hills and this way was good gravel way but passing by many very large arches that were only single but as large as two great gateways and the water i went through that ran under them was so shallow i inquired the meaning and was informed that on great rains these brooks could be swelled to so great a height that unless those arches were so high no passing while it were so they are but narrow bridges for foot or horse and at such floods they are forced in many places to boat it until they come to those arches on the great bridges which are across these great rivers i passed by at least half a dozen of those single high arches besides several great stone bridges of four or six arches which are very high also over their greatest rivers i was about four hours going those twelve miles and could have gone twenty in the time in most countries nay by the people of these parts this twelve is as long and as much time taken up in going it as to go from thence to lancaster which is twenty miles and i can confirm this by my own experience for i went to gascoigne garstang which is ten miles and half way to lancaster in two hours thence to lancaster town ten miles more which i easily reached in two hours and a half or three hours i passed through abundance of villages almost at the end of every mile mostly along lanes being an enclosed country her next allusion shows that in one respect at least lancashire was ahead of the rest of the country they have one good thing in most parts of this principality or county palatine it's rather called that at all crossways there are posts with hands pointing to each road with the names of the great town or market town that it leads to which does make up for the length of the miles that strangers may not lose their road and have it to go back again this comes as a reminder to us that finger posts have not existed from time immemorial the act of parliament which required them to be set up was only passed in sixteen ninety seven and this journey though not precisely dated must have been very soon afterwards in seventeen hundred and four we find bishop nicholson travelling over this same road in the opposite direction he rode on an october day from kendal by levens and lancaster to garstang twenty-six miles in the day garstang to preston he describes as ten short miles but preston to chorley six miles as long in riding as the other ten this was an alternative road to wigan a letter written by sir thomas lowther in seventeen thirty gives a vivid picture of the inconvenience and danger of travelling by this road at that period he is giving directions to his steward as to the escort of a party to london by coach of course a private coach he writes i would have john dean to go all the way from holker to london a little before the coach to observe if there be any dangerous places and then to walk by the coach for fear of an overturn and there is always men in preston or walton hired to go each side of the coach 
through the bad ways in lancashire any readers who are intimately acquainted with the distances by road between the lancashire towns which have been named may have noticed that the figures given in the accounts quoted are not strictly correct they were what were known as computed distances a customary standard which everybody knew was inaccurate but conformed to none the less ogilby in his survey of the roads published in sixteen seventy five although he gave measured miles was constrained to give side by side with them the computed distances thus the twelve miles from wigan to preston which celia fines found so long and which even by computation should be fourteen he makes to be sixteen miles four furlongs and a writer of seventeen sixty three speaks of the computed distances as being nothing better than the effect of wild and random imagination as six such miles are seven or eight in one place in another nine or ten in the whole journey from london to carlisle ogilby makes the vulgar computation two hundred and thirty five miles and the dimensuration three hundred and one miles two furlongs the difference being so much as sixty six and a quarter miles in the notes of a journey from oxford to edinburgh in seventeen thirty seven by dr holmes president of st john's college and mr john quatermain both measured and computed miles are given they laid on successive nights at warrington preston lancaster and kendal the computed travel of the three days being twenty twenty and sixteen miles respectively and the measured twenty-five twenty-two and twenty even the latter seemed to err on the side of scantiness well might celia fines complain of long miles john wesley was so constant a traveller in all parts of the kingdom that his journal could not fail to give us some insight into the conditions of travel during the long period which it covers in the first place one is struck by the great distances which he accomplishes in the day and often on successive days even in lancashire thus he records without comment a ride from chipping near preston to ambleside in april seventeen forty seven and five years later from chipping to whitehaven in two days in seventeen fifty nine he rode from lower darwin to a few miles beyond kendal his journeys were of course mostly on horseback and travelling thus he would be able to avail himself of roads which might not have been fit for wheeled vehicles from no mention being made of preston on the way and from his routes to the north taking in ribchester and chipping it seems likely that he used the old roman road which ran northwestwardly from manchester over Affside moor to lancaster a road which went out of use as a through route soon after his time and which from the absence of wheeled traffic may have been more convenient for horsemen sometimes he is persuaded to get into a chaise but he does not seem at home in it and it is on these occasions that he records accidents in july seventeen sixty nine he had ridden from chester to manchester he writes as we were pretty well tired our friends there insisted on my going on in a chaise so in the morning saturday twenty ninth we set out when we were on the brow of the hill above rippenden suddenly the saddle-horse fell with the driver under him and both lay without motion the shaft-horse then boggled and turned short towards the edge of the precipice but presently the driver and horse rose up unhurt and we went on safe to leeds again in seventeen sixty two he set out from liverpool for wigan but before we came to ashton i was glad to use my own feet and leave the poor horses to drag the shares as they could four years later however he records with some apparent pride a journey commencing at colne i set out early and the next afternoon reached whitehaven and my chaise horses were no worse for travelling a hundred and ten miles in two days it is noticeable that he spent the time on horseback in reading again and again he mentions having read certain books on the way it was after a long journey ending at manchester that he made this remark near thirty years ago i was thinking how is it that no horse ever stumbles while i am reading history poetry and philosophy i commonly read on horseback having other employments at other times no account can possibly be given but this because then i throw the reins on his neck i then set myself to observe 
and i aver that in riding above a hundred thousand miles i scarce ever remember any horse except two that would fall head over heels anyway to fall or make a considerable stumble while i rode with a slack rein occasionally though not very often he records a bad road thus in seventeen eighty one on his way from bolton to blackburn he was desired to take cab on his way but such a road sure no carriage ever went before i was glad to quit it and use my own feet in seventeen eighty eight he found a succession of bad roads in a season it is true of continuous rain from bolton he went on through miserable roads to blackburn the next day he becomes sarcastic through equally good roads we got on to paddyham from hence we went in the afternoon through still more wonderful roads to haslingdon they were sufficient to lame any horses and shake any carriage in pieces n b i will never attempt to travel these roads again till they are effectually mended next day he writes we hobbled on to bury through roads equally deplorable wesley's account of his crossing of the morecambe sands is interesting as a revelation at once of the impediments put in the way of travellers and of his own indomitable character the character of the man of business who refuses to be impeded and chafes at every delay it is in may seventeen fifty nine he has travelled from bolton preaching on the way at lower darwin reaching lancaster he is informed it is too late to cross the sands but he is resolved to make the trial he passes the seven mile sand without difficulty and reaches flookborough about sunset next morning he sets out early and crosses the leven and dudden sands without either guide or difficulty at bootle he is informed he cannot pass at ravenglass before one or two o'clock whereas as he afterwards finds he might have passed immediately about eleven o'clock he is directed to a ford which they say he may cross at noon when he comes they tell him he cannot cross so he sits still till about one o'clock and then finds he could have crossed at noon however he reached whitehaven before night he adds but i have taken my leave of the sand road i believe it is ten measured miles shorter than the other but there are four sands to pass so far from each other that it is scarce possible to pass them all in a day especially as you have all the way to do with a generation of liars who detain all strangers as long as they can either for their own gain or their neighbours i can advise no stranger to go this way he may go round by kendall and keswick often in less time always with less expense and far less trial of his patience wesley seems to have adhered to his determination for his subsequent journeys to whitehaven were by way of ambleside another divine bishop nicholson who crossed these sands many years previously viz in july sixteen eighty four has left a much more laconic record over the three sands to bootle from lancaster a long sabbath day's journey this is all that his diary records and it speaks of an uneventful passage the chief thing noticeable being the length on the whole we may come to the conclusion that the lancashire roads down to this period were not unsuitable for travelling on horseback and that such travelling was tolerably fast nor were they unsuited to the cavalcades of pack-horses by which goods were carried from place to place the leader carrying a bell to notify their approach to other travellers as yet unseen on the bridle roads which these cavalcades would chiefly affect carriages would be unknown and it would only be when their course lay along a carriage road that there would be any serious trouble then they might be compelled to leave the causey on meeting a cavalcade travelling in the opposite direction and in the then state of the carriageway we can imagine the floundering of a loaded animal before it got free from the mud and back again on the firm causey it was really the growth of wheeled traffic which had such a deplorable effect on the great roads and once out of repair the system then in vogue of throwing the cost of their repair upon the locality militated against anything effectual being done for a sparsely populated country parish was not likely to be eager to spend money in keeping in order its portion of a main road used chiefly for the benefit of the large towns on either side the duty indeed was often quite beyond its power 
the remedy which was devised the system of turnpikes was an attempt to throw the burden of repair on the shoulders of those who actually used the road by charging toll collected from them at the turnpikes or toll bars which were set up at intervals along the road to authorize this an act of parliament was necessary and as at the beginning it was thought that the system would only be temporary no general act was passed but application was made for a special act for each road for a limited term of years usually twenty-one the expiration of the term usually found the trustees unable to pay off the loans they had contracted on security of the tolls and so a further act was obtained prolonging the term and this was repeated until in our own time the turnpikes came to an end after an existence of nearly two centuries the system had made some headway in the south and midlands before it reached lancashire and the author of the tour through the whole island of great britain is enthusiastic about the effect the turnpikes had already had upon trade the cost of carriage of goods being abated notwithstanding that the carriers had to bear the toll more weight could be brought with the same number of horses and that with less fatigue and all kinds of travellers found increased safety and ease the first road in lancashire to be turnpiked was that from sherbrooke hill near buxton and chapel and frith to manchester and of it only the last six miles from stockport lay within the county it is described in the act passed in seventeen twenty four as the nearest road from london to manchester next came in seventeen twenty five an act applying to the road from liverpool to prescott and in the following year two acts one relating to the roads from wigan to preston and the other to that from warrington to wigan the roads leading eastwards from manchester through ashton and oldham respectively were dealt with in seventeen thirty two and seventeen thirty five and in the latter year an act was also passed for repairing and widening the road from the town of rochdale leading over a certain craggy mountain called blackstone edge and from thence to the towns of halifax and eland in seventeen forty five an act dealt with the road from prescott to st helens and in seventeen forty nine another with that from ardwick green to wilmslow in cheshire thus down to the middle of the eighteenth century the system had been applied in lancashire only to a very limited extent practically only to that section of the highway to the north which lay between warrington and preston and to certain short lengths in the neighbourhood of liverpool and manchester and even here it could hardly be called a success for it was precisely to that section of the northern highway that arthur young in seventeen seventy one devoted his choicest epithets he writes i know not in the whole range of language terms sufficiently expressive to describe this infernal road to look on a map and perceive that it is a principal one not only to some towns but even whole counties one would naturally conclude it to be at least decent but let me most seriously caution all travellers who may accidentally purpose to travel this terrible country to avoid it as they would the devil for a thousand to one but they break their necks or their limbs by overthrows or breaking down they will here meet with ruts which i actually measured four feet deep and floating with mud only from a wet summer what therefore must it be after a winter the only mending it receives is the tumbling in some loose stones which serve no other purpose but jolting a carriage in the most intolerable manner these are not merely opinions but facts for i actually passed three carts broken down in these eighteen miles of execrable memory so much of the road from preston to wigan onwards to warrington was not much better he writes this is a paved road and most infamously bad any person would imagine the people of the county had made it with a view to immediate destruction for the breadth is only sufficient for one carriage consequently it is cut at once into ruts and you will easily conceive what a breakdown dislocating road ruts cut through a pavement must be the pretence of wanting materials is but a mere pretence for i remarked several quarries of rock sufficient to make miles of excellent road if they will pave the breadth ought to be such as to admit several carriages abreast as the inevitable consequence must be the immediate cutting up tolls had better be doubled and even quadrupled than suffer such a nuisance to remain if this was the state of the main highways what of the country roads at the time 
here and there we get a glimpse of their condition at lee we hear of the vilest roads a foot deep in mud with ruts and holes in which a sheep might be hidden the cart between droylesden and manchester had to be drawn by four horses lengthwise occasionally one wheel was driven along the ditch this being preferable to the highway from possessing a firmer bottom sometimes while passing through the ruts the cart wheels sunk up to the axle trees and the bottom of the cart heard i e grated on the pathway between the clayton folks used to repair their length now and then by filling the ruts with brushwood and then pulling the sides on the top of it with the beginning of the second half of the eighteenth century there was a greatly increased activity in extending the turnpike system all at once and in all directions we find acts obtained for applying the system to considerable lengths of road from preston northwards to the westmoreland border from lancaster eastwards to richmond and south-eastwardly to keighley from manchester to crossford bridge from salford to warrington bolton wigan and duxbury from prescott to warrington and st helens to ashton in makerfield all these roads were the subjects of acts obtained in the first three years of the half century and with the roads previously turnpiked they completed a series of communications within the area lying between manchester liverpool and preston during the next few years the system was applied in the north-eastern part of the county between preston blackburn clitheroe burnley and colne also to rochdale and bury then to the road through ulverston and other roads in the north and then year by year to various sections chiefly in the industrial districts in the south-eastern part of the county the preamble of the act is usually to the effect that the road in question is an important one and that by reason of the nature of the soil and the many and heavy carriages passing through the same the road has become so exceedingly deep and ruinous that in the winter season and frequently in summer it is very difficult and dangerous to pass through the same with wagons carts and other wheel carriages and travellers cannot pass without danger and loss of time sometimes the preamble goes on to allege some special local reason for instance the acts for the crossford bridge and manchester road in seventeen fifty one adds that some part of the road lying next to crossford bridge is many times overflowed with water and unpassable whereby the post is delayed and several persons in attempting to pass through the same have lost their lives the extension of the system in the south-eastern part of the county was necessitated by the spread in the valleys of that district of cotton mills weaving sheds bleach works and dye works for these industries easier means of transit for their productions and for the raw materials coal and other articles they required were a vital necessity the old method of carriage by pack-horses was no longer sufficient and carts and wagons required better roads than those hitherto in use if these roads could be provided it was worth the while of the traders to pay the tolls necessary for keeping them up and for paying the interest on the initial expense in the making of these east lancashire roads john metcalfe the celebrated blind jack of knaresborough took a leading part as a contractor he undertook a considerable mileage and despite his blindness carried out what he had undertaken in a satisfactory manner concurrently with this turnpiking or making of new roads resort was at this time more frequently made in regard to the unturnpiked roads to the old common law method of enforcing repair that of indicting the inhabitants at quarter sessions numerous convictions were obtained the inhabitants being fined a fixed sum which was raised by rates paid to the prosecutor and by him applied to the repair of the highway only sections of roads could be dealt with in this way as the whole road was seldom in one parish and each parish had to be dealt with by a separate indictment on the whole however by one means or another an appreciable improvement was effected as the old acts expired and came up again for renewal the opportunity was taken to make additional improvements the roads were in many places widened straightened or diverted here a bend was cut off and there a steep gradient was eased bridges too were widened and improved and some additional ones were built superseding dangerous fords 
In 1750, an act was obtained for the building of a bridge over the Ribble at Penwortham. Inasmuch as the fords are, by reason of the great freshes and tides which have of late years happened therein, so much worn and become so deep and founderous, that His Majesty's subjects, even at low water, especially in the winter season, cannot pass the same on horseback, or with carts and carriages, without imminent danger. Ribchester Bridge was rebuilt in 1769, and a new bridge on the North Road near Preston was completed in 1782, superseding the old Ribble Bridge, which Querdon, nearly one hundred years before, had described as one of the stateliest stone bridges in the north of England. Similarly, the handsome and substantial stone bridge at Lancaster, consisting of five elliptical arches of a total length of 549 feet, built at a cost of 14,000 by the county, was completed in 1788, and superseded the ancient bridge, which has since fallen into ruin. And so, little by little, the way was being prepared, or rather, for here the usual metaphorical expression becomes absolutely literal. The ways were being prepared for a new method of travel, which was to have its day and then cease to be. Not until these various improvements had been carried out was it possible for the system of stagecoaches to become fully established. It is true that a coach of sorts ran from Preston to London as early as 1663, but it does not seem to have been continued. A traveller by it wrote that his journey was in no way pleasant, and had so indisposed him that he was resolved never to ride up again in the coach. The first coach from Manchester to London was not until 1754, when it was announced that the flying coach would actually, barring accidents, arrive in London in four days and a half after leaving Manchester. Four years later, the flying machine was advertised to go from London to Liverpool in three days. In 1773, the Manchester, Warrington and Liverpool stagecoach set out from the Spread Eagle in Salford, in summer, on Monday, Wednesday and Friday in every week, and returned thither on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. But it is beyond our present purpose to describe the growth and decline of stagecoaching in Lancashire. Its growth marks the end of the period we set out to review, and brings in an era wherein the leisurely travel of the individual gives place to the ordered movement of the group, and a man begins to submit to the tyranny of the timetable, a tyranny increasingly felt as the railways developed. The charm of self-regulated motion, travel at one's own sweet will, has been rediscovered by some of us in these later days through the agency of the bicycle and the motor-car, but this is not for the majority and in any case the conditions are now wholly changed, the past cannot be reconstituted, and therefore it is that for us today there remains some interest of an archaic kind in the means and methods of old-time travel. End of part three.